proving something often be it's more of a challenge than we necessarily realize. Prove to me that you can do what you say you can do. All right, it's one thing to say you can do something, but you have the ability to do it. It's an entirely different thing to actually be able to do it, to demonstrate one's ability. What proof do you have that God has the ability to save? That God can deliver us from sin and death. Friends, sin is a powerful enemy. It's so powerful that it causes the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, to say, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Sin has enslaved us to do what we do not want to do. What about death? If sin is the great enslaver, then death is the prison in which we are locked away. No one can escape the prison of death. Uh, No one has existed, has lived, with the exception of one, that death has not brought its grip and grasp upon us. This is why Paul would go on in that same chapter in Romans 7 to say, who can free us from this body of death? Our sin has led to our own death. As the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt under the crushing tyranny of Pharaoh, they had no power in them. To leave the slavery that they were in. And even when God delivered them from slavery. Oh, you remember what they said in the wilderness. Oh, I wish I could just go back to slavery. It was so good. But how can I know that God has the ability then to save me? To deliver me. If you understand anything about yourself this morning, I pray that it is a glimpse that your sin is great. And that the last time I checked, everyone dies. There's not some magic bullet, some medical treatment that will prevent your death. That will prevent my death. And I I don't mean to be morbid. But the reality is. That even those in the Bible. With the exception of Jesus. Who were raised from the dead. Like Lazarus died again. Right? Poor guy. He had to die twice. Death. Comes to all. Because all. Sin. And friend, I fear both my sin and my death. So prove to me that God can deliver, that God can save. 
I think it's quite easy to prove. Easy. There was once a man who lived and who died. This man lived a perfect life. In every way that his father commanded him, in every command his father gave him, and and boy, fathers can give some tremendously burdensome commands. This father gave some as well. But this son perfectly obeyed every single command that his father gave to him. And this man lived a perfect life. But this man also died a perfect death. Not not the death he deserved. There was nothing in him. He hadn't done anything wrong. He died the death that others deserved. But this man who lived the perfect life and died the perfect death didn't stay dead. His father, whom he had perfectly obeyed, we are told after this man was in his tomb for three days, his father raised him back to life. His father did not abandon his soul and body to decay, but raised him from the grave. And this man... We are told the Bible is now the king of the universe. This perfect man is, of course, none other than Jesus. The one who lived the perfect life and died the perfect death. And so to prove to you that God can deliver you from sin and from the grip of death. He raised his son from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is all the proof you and I need that God is powerful to save. This is why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The greatest display of God's power that human history, that humanity has ever seen is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A dead man, after three days, walks out of the tomb and lives today. As I said, he's not like Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, but somewhere in the Middle East lays Lazarus' bones. This Jesus, though, lives. And friends, this is what we want to think about and meditate on. How do we transfer, how do we take the resurrection of Christ, which we tend to celebrate only on Easter, and we only really think about it then, empty tomb stuff, right? How do we make that a present reality in everyday life? How does it affect your marriage, your parenting, your work, even gathering together as God's people? Well, friends, as you'll be reminded, we've been studying the letter of Ephesians. And we have been over the last few weeks considering uh, the first of Paul's two big prayers that he prays. And And these prayers are just immensely full of of good and great truths about who God is and, and really how we should be praying. We have, over the last few weeks, sought to understand 
what Paul was praying and why he prayed. It really is a model for us on how to pray for one another. Well, of course, the big thing that Paul is praying for here is knowledge. Uh, He wants the church at Ephesus to know some things. As Christians, Paul tells us that we grow in knowledge. A Christian grows. This is just sort of basic Christianity. Christianity 101. As a Christian, expect to grow. If you're not growing, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's broken. We need to to get in and see what happened. Well, as Paul moved from praise and worship to thanksgiving and prayer, he prayed that they would know God better. That's really what Paul's prayer has its aim in mind, that they would know this God who has saved them, that they would know him better, that they would know God's grace. They would be able to grasp the hope and the immeasurable riches of God's Kindness towards them. And now he turns to pray and sort of this final third prayer request that they would know God's greatness in Christ. That they would know the greatness of God's power displayed in Christ and in their own salvation. Well, friends, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. Since, and we're going to consider verses 19 through 23 today. Uh, but just for context's sake, let's begin in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places." Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, Paul here prays that Christians would know the greatness of God's power at work in their lives. Paul doesn't merely want them to kind of have this view and say, okay, God's power is out there, but rather to see God's power in here. And I think even specifically in here, in the church. The same power that God has exercised in Christ is the power at work in our lives together as God's people. And so this morning, my hope is that we would just pray that the Spirit would give us illumination to be able to grasp this power, that we might understand that God's operative power in our lives is for us and for His glory. And so Paul prays that we would know the greatness of God's power. That we would be able to grasp it as what it truly is. It's great, immeasurable. 
But he also prays that they would know God's great power is for you. It's for us who believe. And then in verses 20 through 23, he sort of concludes with this high and exalted look at Christ. He says that power that God displayed in Christ, yes, that is the power, the power for you. Well, let's look here first at verse 19. And I want you to see here that, that we are to know God's power is immeasurable. We are to know that our God has immeasurable power. Look at what Paul writes there. He continues in his prayer and he says, well, I pray that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Uh, Paul wanted them to know how great God was. He didn't want him just to sing how great thou art. He wanted them to know how great thou art. And notice first here that how he describes God's power. He describes it as immeasurable. God's power cannot be measured. God's power is to such a degree that it extends beyond any measurable means. If there was uh, a measurement that we could measure God's power. His power would exceed even that measurement that we created. There's no ruler. There's no metric. Scientists haven't created some sort of tool to, to be able to measure how expensive and great God's power is. God's power surpasses all other power combined. If you took all of the energy in all of the universe, uh, of course, we know uh, we feel that energy in our life, right? We hope to feel it this afternoon, right? They promised us some, some sun today. Uh, we shall see, um, right? But we will feel, right, the energy of the sun, right? Uh, we will feel the power of the sun. If you took all of that power of all of these suns and, and all of this energy in the universe, it would not come close to measuring the greatness of God's power. His power is inexhaustible. It is unable to be measured. This is what Paul means, that it's immeasurably great. But he goes on and says that God doesn't just merely have this power, you know, sort of contained in a box. In other words, God doesn't just have the potential. God actually uses his power. He actually works with his power. He doesn't have the capacity. He actually has the ability. Notice what he writes here in, in this verse. In the second half of verse 19, Paul continues and he says that, it, that this power, it's, it's according to the mighty working of his strength. In the original language, what Paul does here is he packs together all the synonyms for the word power in, that he can think of. He, he, he sort of just crams together five words in this one verse that all mean power. To, to really exhaustively help us understand the extent and, and really... Length, the exhaustive nature, but more than that, the 
the fact that God is working his power in human history. Right, so everyone can look into the sky and see God's power. Uh, we can see the stars, the sun, if we already. Uh, creation itself testifies to the power of God. We, uh, brother and sister here getting back from Australia and New Zealand, you know, just telling me of the wonder of God's power in creation, right? Uh, from the simplest, we, we know God's power in creation. Uh, this is what David will extol in the Psalms. Uh, in Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. As, as David just sort of looked out into the sky, he saw the greatness of God displayed in creation. Or you'll be reminded of what David said at Solomon's coronation. When he was coronating his son to be the king of Israel, he said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Right? So, so David is looking into creation and he's saying, Oh, how great is our God. God is a mighty and powerful God. He not only has power, but he uses his power. And we've seen it. And the sun and the stars and the beauty of creation, even in the wonder of our own humanity and the way we've been created and the way we think and the, the way we interact. In each of these, God's power is measurably displayed. But here, in the context of this verse, Paul declares that God's power shines the brightest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul here is not talking about God's creative power. Uh, or his power displayed in other ways. But here, Paul is pointing out that God's great power, the greatest display, is when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We're going to consider that more in, in our third point in just a moment. But, but brothers and sisters, before we move on, I, I just can't help but stop and ask you, are you enthralled by the power of God? Do you know that this is the God of the universe whose power is immeasurably great? Do you know that God is greater than any power in this world? Friends, our, our world is filled with many powerful things. I mean, you... Just like touch an outlet. It's powerful. It will hurt. Oh, we know that there are forces in this world that are powerful. Governments, dictators, people. God is more powerful than them all. We know that sicknesses come and illnesses ravish our bodies. Cancers eat away at us, and we feel powerless. Even, even our aging bodies testify to our own powerlessness. We can't stop the slow death march to the grave. Right? No, no amount of Botox or, or, or any other thing is going to fix it, right? But we know that our bodies are wasting away. 
our knowledge of God's immeasurable great power, I think what Paul is after here is to give us comfort in a world that we have no power over. I mean, you, you and I re- really re- recognize we have no power over who the next president of the United States will be. We, we have no power over how the Supreme Court is going to rule on some case. Oh, we have a voice. It's not to diminish our voice. But we have no power. We're powerless. We have no power whether our company is going to be relocated or not. We have no power in our own skills and ability. When our life is out of control, we can trust that God is in control. That he actually has the power to control our lives. We are thankful for that today. We are thankful that there is no power greater than him. This is what Paul will make clear when he proclaims that Christ's rule is far above all principalities and power. That is, there's not some rogue demon army out there that's going to come in here and destroy us. No, no, no. God is more powerful. Why Paul would write in, Roman, or in chapter 6 of Ephesians, in verse 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of darkness. That's scary stuff, friends. Are you afraid? Do you fear the evil in this world? Brothers and sisters, know that God's power is greater. This is what we hear in the sort of popular song, Whom then shall I fear? Whom then shall I fear? If Christ is all-powerful, who do we fear? Oh, in that wonderful verse in Romans 8, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul writes, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that's a faith, a belief in the power of God that is immeasurably great. And so one of the things you can pray for today is that you would know the greatness of God's power. But this power is not merely out there, Paul says. This power is operative in our own lives. It is for us. Notice what he writes again in verse 19. He says, I want you to know, church, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards your neighbors, towards the super spiritual Christians, Towards the ones who have a lot of faith? No, no. To those toward us who believe. Notice he changes his pronoun usage here. He had been talking about you, 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 you. And now he shifts to say us, us, us. Like a we, we, we. Um, Here's the thing. If you listen to the way we sing our hymns, they they do the same thing. In Christ, the sure and steady anchor. It, It shifts from the I, the personal, to the we. The communal aspect. But here Paul says that it is towards us who believe. In other words, this great power of God is for you. It's available to you. Paul wants them to know that God's power 
has acted, God has acted with his power for our sake. It was for our sake that God has saved. It's for those who believe. Notice that God's power isn't for everyone. Of course, Paul is referring to saving power, the the power to save us from our sins. The power to unite us in Christ, to take, you know, uh, centuries, you would say, of racial hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles and then unite them in one. Uh, Friends, that takes some sort of immeasurable power to create. But here Paul says that God's power is not for everyone, but it is for those who believe, who have faith in Christ, who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. In other words, God's power is is for only those who know themselves to be powerless. That's what belief is, right? That's what trust is. When you trust in Jesus, you're trusting you can't save yourself. That you need someone else to do it. You're saying, you're declaring to God, I am powerless. Sin is too great. Death is scary. And I'm pretty sure I can't overcome death. Therefore, I am powerless. This is why Paul prays in chapter 3 that they would be strengthened by God's power. Uh, look at verse, or in chapter 3, just sort of skim over your eyes to chapter 3 and the second prayer. In verse 16, Paul prays that according to the riches of God's glory, he, God, may grant you, Christian, to be strengthened. Strengthened with what? With power. Through what means? By what means? Through His Spirit. Where? In your inner being. Paul implies by this prayer that we are weak without God. Apart from the Spirit of God, we are helpless. And so he wants them to tap into the power. Now, I've resisted the urge to use silly illustrations about plugging into Jesus and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, but there's a sense in which that is true, even though those illustrations are, are overdone and, and maybe need to be put to bed. The reality is, is as Christians, we need the sustaining power of God in our lives. God's power is operative not only in our salvation, but in our day-to-day sustaining. Friends, this passage, the point I want you to see this morning, is, is that this prayer is teaching us that we are powerless. The reason why Paul smashes together all these power words is to show how powerless we are. Friends, you can't straighten your life out. No amount of good deeds, for example, will ever be able to wash away the stain of your sin. Friends, the stain of our sin runs deep. No amount of good work scrubbing will ever be able to scrub out all of the wickedness we have done in our lives. And honestly, God is never impressed by our efforts. The prophets remind us that God sees them as filthy rags. They're really unimpressive to him. God really isn't looking for us to be powerful, but to recognize that we are weak. 
And so, brother, sister, let me just encourage you by this this morning. Stop trying to be powerful. But embrace your weakness. You know how silly we look when we try to do life our own way to a God who is described as immeasurably powerful? You have to really look kind of silly the way we try to run our lives by our own strength and power. God is not asking us to do that. God is not impressed by our efforts. Let me think about it. God could create in in a nanosecond what we spend an entire life trying to create. In one second, God can create a universe. Yet we spend a lifetime trying to create out of our own strength. This is why the Apostle Paul learned the sort of hard lessons. You'll be reminded that Paul had a thorn in the flesh. I'm not really sure what that was. But you know, Paul prayed that God would remove that thorn from him. He tells us that he prayed three times that God would, would remove it. Now, now get this. This is the Apostle Paul. Prayer warrior Paul, right? I, I ceaselessly pray. I never stop. I'm, I'm always praying for you, Paul. And God doesn't answer his prayers. Why? Because God was teaching Paul to embrace his weaknesses rather than his strengths. You know, we tend to lean into our strengths. Uh, when we're strong, if we're a strong people person, we'll kind of lean into that. But if we're not a strong people, we'll kind of lean back. Paul was strong. And when Paul was strong, God was weak. At least he was seen to be weak. And when we are strong... And God's power is not clearly displayed. This is why Paul would go on to write. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brother, sister, do you believe that? I know you've got it, you know, plastered on your wall at home. Stick it on your bumper sticker. But do you believe that? God is not asking you to be the best husband in the world. Or the best parent. The best employee. We should strive for excellence in our lives. But brothers and sisters, let us embrace our weaknesses. For then Christ is strong. Brother, sister, remove the burden. It's okay that you're not the best parent in the world. It's okay. It's okay that your kids aren't as successful as you hope they would have been. It's okay that your business isn't as booming. And it's okay that I'm not the greatest preacher in the world. It's okay. When we are weak. It's okay to be honest. That we are helpless. You see, because the power of God. Is for weaklings like us. Not for strong. And frankly, you will never see God as all powerful. 
as immeasurably great until you see yourself as immeasurably weak. Trust God's power for you. As a congregation, let us give ourselves to the means of God's grace. I am convinced that God will build his church for his glory. And so in such a way that at the end of the day, he gets all the credit and no one else will. This is why Luther would say in in affirmation of the Reformation that the word did the work. I didn't do anything. Let us pray to know and understand God's great power for us. Well, let's look finally here at number three in verses 20 through 23. That we would know God's power in Christ. In these verses, Paul outlines three ways that God's power is displayed in Christ. I like the way that the Holman or the Holman Christian or the Christian Standard Bible translates this section. It stops at verse 19 and begins a new sentence at verse 20 to emphasize God exercised his power when he did these things. And then, the, then Paul rattles off. That's the thrust of the passage. In other words, where do we see God's power displayed? It is in the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the ruling power of Christ. So God's power is a resurrection power. That's what Paul says here in verse 20. That God worked in Christ. That is that power. He worked in Christ when? When did did he display his power? When he raised him, that is Christ, from the dead. In the Old Testament, the saints look to creation and the exodus as the pinnacle display of God's immeasurable greatness. That's what David was doing in the Psalms and what he did at the coronation of, of Solomon. But as Christians, what we point to is the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the greatest display of God's power. How do we know that God is powerful to save? Because a dead man got up from a grave. We don't merely believe that God can do the impossible, but that God has done the impossible. I mean, friends, I wonder as Christians, have we lost the wonder of the resurrection? I mean, it is not normal for dead people to come out of graves. That's not normal. We lost the wonder in our scientific age. No, science has been created. No treatment, no innovation where where dead people come back to life again. That is, this doesn't happen. Friends, the resurrection of Christ will remain to be the miracle of all miracles until our own resurrection. Until the day he raises all to life. Remember here that Paul says that the resurrection power is for us. This is what Paul would say in Romans, that Christ was raised for our justification. The resurrection of Christ is the vindication that all that Jesus did through his life and death accomplished the ends he set out for. That brothers and sisters, we 
live in this resurrection power. We live by this power. God is able to save. And we point to the resurrection as the proof that God can save us. But I fear that we've lost this wonder of the resurrection. Jared Wilson, he's a well-known author, and Jared also serves at Midwestern Seminary. He has a a bit of wit about him, and and he wrote a number of years ago just a really helpful piece on what some churches do on Easter Sunday and some of the silly practices that they give themselves to. For example, one church gives away iPads, to those who come. Another church uh, gives away cars uh, in order to attract people to draw a crowd as if the resurrection of Christ is not enough. And I wonder, is, is Jesus, his resurrection enough for you? Does it impress you that there was life where death reigned? And of course, the resurrection of Christ points to our own resurrection. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is our hope and why Paul prays that they would know this because this is our hope. The resurrection of Christ points to a future resurrection that, that those that are in Christ will participate in. That we will be raised from death to life and, and not to die again, but to live for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, God is able to save. This is what I commend you to have hope in. Keep praying for your lost children. God is able to save. Keep praying for your lost grandchildren. God is able to save. Do not lose hope. He will save. Keep praying, brothers and sisters. Look here also in verse 20. God's power is ascension power. Not only is God's power displayed in the resurrection, but it's displayed in the ascension of Christ. God exercised this power by seating Christ at his right hand in the heavens. Uh, God displayed his power by giving his power to his son. He said at his right hand. This doesn't mean Jesus is literally sitting at God's right hand in heaven. That This is a metaphor. Uh, the right hand is an Old Testament metaphor that taught power. Power was in the right hand. Authority and rule. But this is what David prophesied in Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, Jesus' ascension to heaven displays his authority over all creation. Why we can sing together that Jesus has taken the highest station, that it is the, a joy that sight affords. Well, in verses 21 through 23, we see that God's power is ruling power. You know, Jesus doesn't merely have the potential for power. Jesus isn't a puppet figure. He has ruling power. We see that he has a supremacy over all creation in verses 20 through 22, 21 through 22. But we also see that he has a headship 
over his church. That, that Christ not only rules over creation, but that he rules over his church. Notice first here in verse 21 that, that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus' rule is exhaustive. Paul here just chains together a bunch of angelic structures for which we really don't know much about but here he's referring to these cosmic powers in the heavenly places and he's saying you know all those great powers you know all those angels or all those demons and all these idols that are worshipped in in Ephesus Jesus reigns supreme over them all of them have been put under his power his power and authority is exhaustive but notice here That he's not merely supreme over all things, but that all things are subjected to him. Right? It's one thing to be the president of the United States. It's an entirely different thing for everybody to be subjected to you. In other words, everyone does what you say. See, what Paul says here is not only does Jesus have the power to rule, but he rules in such a way that everyone bows their knees. Of course, a a well-known passage, Philippians 2, that every knee shall bow. Every knee, not not just the knees who believe, but every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth. Or what we heard from our brother earlier in Revelation 5, that all things, like, did, did you hear what he said? In the sea? What's in the sea? Like, animals are, are bowing to Jesus, right? Fish are worshiping Jesus. Now, why would Paul pray that they know these things? So that they could face the world they live in. So that they would not live with fear, but put on the whole armor of God. The same Jared Wilson would say that I can face yesterday because he lives. And that's true, right? Because a lot of times it's yesterday that's the problem, not today. Today's a new day and there's new mercy, but the problem is is the haunting memories of yesterday. I'm not afraid of the present or the future, and I'm not afraid of my past, because Christ rules over all and he has the power to save all. Well, finally here in this sort of final point, and we're going to wrap up with this, as the time is escaping us. We see that not only does Christ rule over all creation, but that he is the head of his church. He rules over his church. Look at verse 22. That God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in in all. This will be an important theme that Paul is going to develop in this letter. It's why he prays that they would know it. It's going to have very specific implications for their lives. Racial unity, for example. If Christ is head of all, and all are filled in Christ, then there is no ethnic dividing line. There's no Jew and Gentile, but all in Christ. We're going to see also that Everyone is working to be built into this body. 
that this body works together. But the point I want us to just meditate, because we'll consider those in the weeks ahead, is that Paul begins this metaphor by saying that Christ is the head of his body. That the church is the body of Christ, which he is the head. A headless body is a freak, isn't it? And a bodiless, just a head. That's weird too. Christ is the head of his body. In other words, he has authority over it. The head directs where the body goes. Where the head goes, where the head turns, the body turns, right? We all learned that in the, when we took driving school, right? Wherever your head turns, that's where that car is going, right? That's the way it is. Wherever your head is, wherever it's going, that's where the body goes. And brothers and sisters, it goes without saying that this is Jesus' church. And American evangelicals seem to really struggle with this. The church is Jesus's, which means it's not yours. The church is not mine, and it's not yours. I'm not in control, and neither are you. And the more you are, and the more I am, the more I'm trying to be the head and not the body. We've been called to be the body of Christ, not the head of Christ. But we are to give an account for the way that we steward this body. And so, brothers and sisters, just remind yourself of that truth this morning. I hope that you find this sobering, but encouraging, that you are the body of Christ and that Jesus rules over us in the sweetest way, in the greatest way. And this is why we give ourselves to the regular preaching of his word. Because we want to hear what Jesus has to say. We want to know what the head wants us to go. Well, brothers and sisters, may we as Christians know this great God better and better. There's much more, of course, that could be said about these verses. But our ultimate aim is to incorporate these prayers into our life together to pray regularly god help me to know your immeasurably great power at work in my life lord help me to grasp the greatness of christ's rule over the universe and over his bride calvin meditating on this verse Meditating specifically about our participation in the body of Christ. He writes, this is the highest honor of the church. That unless he is united to us, the son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What an encouragement it is to hear. That not until Jesus has us as one with himself, is he complete in all his parts? Or does he wish to be regarded as whole? Oh, friend, that is an encouragement to us today. That the power of God is not out there, but it's displayed in here every week when we gather. Every week when we forgive one another, and love one another, and pray for one another. And see sinners saved. 
God's power is displayed for his glory and our good. Let's pray. God, we pray this morning that you would seal us by your word, that we would grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that a better sermon was heard than the one preached. Lord, we pray that we would all have a feeling sense of the things we just heard in your word. Lord, our minds are too small and feeble to understand, to get a glimpse at your greatness. But, oh Lord, we know by your spirit, you will give us minds to understand and hearts to believe. Uh, Lord, I pray for that sinner this morning who's wrestling to trust in you. Oh, Lord, I pray right now the Holy Spirit would bring about saving conviction, regenerating power, that they might turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. For your good we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.